Let's pray, and we're going to dive into this amazing uh, new series. God, thank you for every person that you brought here to this place today. You're a big God, and it is not an accident. Even if we came in uh, kicking and screaming or pouting or we carried in really heavy baggage in our lives, it's, it's not an accident that you brought us here today to hear what you have to say to us. It's a divine appointment. So God, uh, open our minds and our ears and our hearts uh, so that we may hear what you have to say to us and then when we leave here today, we're different than when we walked in. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anybody else hate waiting? I, I know that's a rhetorical question, right? Like maybe the dumbest question I've ever asked uh, since we opened our doors. We all hate waiting and whether you like it or not everyone has to wait it's just part of life we wait in checkout lines traffic jams we wait for test results some people wait for that right significant other to come along one day some people wait for that significant other to finally get around to popping the question we wait on food to cook rain to stop paychecks to come We wait on answers and healing and relief and progress and even more than that. Waiting is a part of life. We all have to do it. And over the next four weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to be in this series called Waiting Room. And what we're going to do is we're going to dive into Scripture and look at the lives of some people who had to wait on God. Because it's one thing to wait at the checkout line because if you're like me when you approach the checkout area you're already scanning things with your radar your checkout line radar and you're doing the math in your head you're like oh she has that much and so if I go over here there's one more person but they all have and and we we can we still have some control over the situation and we can you know kind of manipulate things to to lessen our waiting time however when you wait on God You are completely out of control. It is all up to him. Now, some of us try to take matters into our own hands. And if you're anything like me in your life, when you do take matters into your own hands, it usually blows up in your face and you end up going, I I wish I would have just waited on God. So we're going to look at people throughout scripture that had to wait for different reasons, on different things, for different lengths of time, but they all had to wait. And whether we like it or not, if you are a believer, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, forget that. Even if you don't believe in God, you're going to spend part of your human life here on earth waiting on God. We all have to do it, right? And here's why we're going to share the stories of these people. Number one, so you'll know that you're not alone. Because if you're anything like me, when I have to wait on God, I go into pity party mode or do your job better God mode, and and I I tend to think I'm the only one that's having to do this. I'm the only one that's walking through this struggle right now. Uh, So so we're going to share these stories so you know you're not the only one, and then we're going to share these stories because, listen, don't miss this, there are really good things in life that are learned best in the waiting room. We just don't learn them as well 
when we're not in the waiting room. And so today we're going to kick off uh, the waiting room series by looking at the life of one of the earliest families mentioned in Scripture. In fact, the guy that we're going to focus on today, his great-grandpa was a guy named Abraham, right? And Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. And then the topic for our talk today, Jacob had a son, well, he had a lot of sons, but one of those sons was named Joseph, And Joseph knew a thing or two about waiting. And so if you have your Bible or your smartphone and you want to turn there today, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40, and and as you guys get there, it'll also be on the screen, so don't worry about it. Uh, But let me set up the story of Joseph for a second. Um, As a teenager, what we know about Joseph is that clearly he was his dad's favorite. He was the teacher's pet of all of his brothers, and he knew it. And the Bible even says, and I'm putting in in, in Steve's paraphrase here, Joseph was kind of a punk, especially to his older brothers. He he knew that he was dad's favorite, and he kind of showed off in that way, and and he he didn't treat his brothers uh, very well. He would tattle on them. Sometimes he would tattle on them for things they didn't do. And finally... We pick up the story of Joseph when his brothers have had enough of his punkness. And they capture their brother Joseph. They throw him in a pit, literally a pit. And they let him stay there until this band of Egyptians comes along and they actually sell their brother as a slave. It literally, it's one of the first... uh, images of human trafficking and I'm not being silly there like literally they were so angry and so bitter toward their brother that they sold him as a slave and he gets taken off to Egypt now before we go any further you need to know this even when really bad things happen in your life God's at work and we'll get more to that in a minute but I just want to set that stage because Even in the moment where Joseph is sold into slavery, he's on some uh, chariot or trailer headed toward Egypt, God was working in his life. And and the reason we know that is when, when he gets to Egypt, he had such favor on his life from God that he actually gets this really sweet job in the house of this guy named Potiphar who worked for the Pharaoh. And picture Pharaoh as king, president, dictator, all rolled into one. He's the most powerful person in the world at that time when, when this happens to Joseph. And, and Joseph gets a job working in the home of one of the Pharaoh's main dudes. Everybody with me so far? The problem is, is that this guy, Potiphar, that Joseph was working for, so again, he gets sold as a slave, but he starts climbing up really quickly, and he's got a pretty good life. Until one day... His boss's wife says, Joseph, you're kind of cute. Let's hook up. Pretty much, right? And, and Joseph's like, uh, you know, Mr. Potiphar, boss, me, dead, you know, no thank you. And the Bible says that she came on to him and, and seduced him. And he did the right thing, men. Okay, he did the right thing. He ran away so fast that she literally tore part of his garment off of him as he ran. And she was embarrassed now because she's kind of blown her cover that she was seducing little slave boy Joseph. And so she blames everything on him. In fact, she accuses him of sexual assault. And 
Joseph gets put in prison. Okay, now, that's just the beginning of the story, but let's take a breath for a minute, right? You're, you're, okay, so you're a little bit of a punk, but generally speaking, Joseph's a good guy. He comes from, generally speaking, like a lot of us, a good family, and he wakes up one day, and his brothers turn on him. He spends time literally sitting in a pit. He's sold as a slave. He, he gets out of that a little bit and gets a pretty good gig, but then he gets accused falsely of sexual assault, and now he finds himself in prison. Have you ever had those moments in your life where you go, how did I get here? How did this happen? Like, I didn't do anything. And so, this is not going to be on the screen. We'll get to all that stuff in a minute, but here's what you need to know. Sometimes, other people's poor decisions is going to fall on you. You didn't deserve it. You didn't ask for it. Now, sometimes our own decisions put us in the waiting room, but sometimes it has nothing to do with anything you did. Bad things just happen. We live in a broken, fallen world, and bad things happen to all kinds of people, even when they didn't ask for it or they didn't cause it in their own lives. So, back to Joseph. When, when he gets put in prison, once again, the favor of God is on him. It, clearly, God had a plan for Joseph's life because even in prison, God's looking out for him. And there were two other guys that were in prison with Joseph. Uh, it was the king's cupbearer, which we don't have a whole lot of time to go into that, but uh, some people believe that one of the jobs of the cupbearer bearer was to test every drink for the king in case it was poison, then cupbearer dude dies, not king, right? And it was a very important job, and he was very close to the king, but for whatever reason, he's in prison. And then the chief chef or baker for the, for the pharaoh, uh, king, whatever you want to call him, is also in prison. And here's what happens. While in prison, so, you know, picture a cell block or whatever, and Joseph's hanging out with these guys. He kind of gets to know them. And one day, one of the guys comes to Joseph and says, man, I had the weirdest dream. And you've probably done that to someone. And, and Joseph says, you know what, I, I, I know what that dream means. I, I can tell you. I mean, I, I, I talk to God. I, I know the God of heaven. Uh, the creator of the universe, I can tell you what that dream means. And so he tells this guy, here's what your dream means. And the other guy, the baker, he overhears it and he says, man, I had a dream too. If my dream's going to turn out that good, tell me my dream too, Joseph. Interpret my dream. So Joseph interprets the chef's dream. Unfortunately, uh, the chef's dream doesn't turn out quite as exciting as the cupbearer's dream because the cupbearer's dream, he gets, his, he gets out of prison and gets his job back with the pharaoh and the, the chef or the chief baker of the pharaoh, his dream ends up with him impaled on a pole like a shish kebab. Right? I mean, literally, that, you can look in the bottle. That's exactly what Joseph told him. And, and, and they both were grateful. And they're like, thank you for interpreting these dreams. What can we do for you? And Joseph basically says to the cupbearer, hey, when you get your job back, because you're going to, because God told me what your dream meant, tell the Pharaoh about me. Like, don't leave me in here. You've got to have a brother's back, man. When you get back up there with the Pharaoh, put in a good word and get me out of here. And the cupbearer's going, dude, you have... I got you, man. I, I got you. Don't worry. I would never forget about you. And then he, the dream comes true. And he gets his job back. And he forgets all about Joseph. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 40, uh, verse 23. The Bible says this. 
Now, everything happened just as Joseph had said it would, but the king's personal servant completely forgot about Joseph. Now, let me stop and say this before we go any further. There are going to be times in your life, listen, don't miss what I'm saying, when you don't just feel forgotten, you will be forgotten. One of the greatest pieces of advice that I ever got in my adult life is from a a mentor pastor of mine, uh, and he basically told me this, hey, I know you think about you a lot, but the reality is everybody else just doesn't think about you a lot. Like, the, the, the world and the universe do not revolve around Steve or you. And, and people forget about you. And so there are times in our lives where we are going to feel really forgotten and lonely. But listen, there are going to be times when you're literally forgotten and all alone. It's just part of life. Maybe it's as a result of choices we made ourselves. Maybe it's a choice that someone else made and it negatively impacted us. How you got there is not as important as the fact that we all have these seasons of life where we feel like we're looking at God with our hands like this going, got anything for me? Like an answer or just a hint or maybe a billboard or, or like write it in the sky, like tell me something. Don't make me just sit here and wait. And those seasons of life often feel dark and sad, unfair lonely. I remember this week when, uh, when we got the news that Michelle's dad had fallen asleep and uh, the, the, uh, the neurosurgeon called us in and he showed us the CAT scan and how from day one the damage to the brain from the stroke looked pretty bad but not end of life bad and then he shows us the other CAT scan and how it was just devastating and he I'll never forget his words he said this cat scan the first one this is compatible with life he may not sound the same he may not look the same but he can live this cat scan is not compatible with life he's not going to survive this and I remember thinking to myself I didn't say it to the surgeon there in intensive care but I remember thinking that's not fair I hit the father-in-law jackpot. And I'm not, don't look at your spouse if they're in here today, but a lot of people don't think that highly of their in-laws, right? It's one of those things that comes with the territory when we get married and, and we're like, okay, yeah, tell your mom to come on over or whatever, okay? Like, like that, I know that that's how some people's relationship with their in-laws are. That wasn't mine. When I say my father-in-law was my hero, he taught me everything. I didn't have a male presence in my life growing up or even in early adulthood that would take the time to teach me what it meant to be a man and a husband and a father and a servant and a leader. Everything that you see, probably all the good stuff that you see about me came from my father-in-law. And I remember sitting there thinking and and right then I was I was directing my anger at the neurosurgeon because I wanted him to say I, I wanted to say to him fix this fix him so I can get back to my normal life this is not fair and then I had a moment in the bathroom where I just broke down and my anger moved from the neurosurgeon to the great physician and I said this isn't fair 
Like, I, I need him. There's still a lot I have to learn. And he's the one I always go to, right? Like, anytime I don't know what to do, I, I call Pappy. I know that you know what that feels like. We all have those moments where you just go, this isn't fair. Is the light ever going to come back on? I am so heartbroken. There's such a hole in my heart or I'm lonely or I feel like everybody in my life is ignoring me or has forgotten me. And that's how Joseph felt when he's in prison. We will all be forgotten at times. That's just how human love works. It's broken. And listen to this. The enemy will do whatever he can to make you be forgotten or at least feel forgotten. But there are two things that you cannot, cannot leave here without today. Take them throughout this whole series, but also for the rest of your life. Number one is on the screen, and it goes like this. No matter how lonely life may feel, God has not forgotten you. And I'm going to prove it with Joseph's life here in a second. Before we look at Joseph, I want you to know today, this is true about your life. Because it's easy for us to go, Joseph Smoshes, all right? Like, forget him. What about me? And I'm telling you today, there are times in our lives when we feel so alone and forgotten. In that moment, God not only has not forgotten you, he is right in that moment working on your behalf, whether you feel it or not. And we'll come back to that in a minute. The other thing I want you to know today, and don't forget this throughout this whole series, but... For the rest of our lives, we need to remember that Jesus knows what it feels like to be forgotten. That's why he's such a great friend. That's why we can trust him to always be what we need to be because he suffered and experienced everything that we experience. In Revelation chapter 2, it begins this uh, series of letters to seven churches. And one of those churches is the church at Ephesus. It's the same church that the Apostle Paul writes the book of Ephesians or the letter of Ephesians to. And, and in this uh, letter to uh, uh, the church at Ephesus, John, the author of Revelation, says these famous words on behalf of Jesus. Like Jesus is saying them, so John writes the letters on, on behalf of Jesus. And Jesus says to this church, you have forgotten your first love. And the context of that letter in Revelation chapter 2 is Jesus goes like this. You're doing a lot of things really good. Like, man, you're helping people and you're loving on uh, the lost and hurting and you help the homeless and you're, you're doing a lot of good stuff. But the thing that you're missing is you've forgotten that I'm the most important thing. You, you, you forgot me. In fact, a lot of uh, uh, translation of the Bible say things like, you have forsaken your first love, or you have abandoned your first love. Jesus knows what it feels like to be abandoned and forgotten. You know why? Because you and I do it to him all the time. If you've been around the bridge very long, you've heard me use this term, triple-A God, right? A lot of times we, we treat God like triple-A roadside assistance, when we break down and we need him, we're like, hey, come on, God, we're, we're, fix this. And then as soon as it's fixed and we feel like life is stable again, we go something like this. Okay, I'll call you if I need you. And we forget. He knows what that feels like to be forgotten. 
at the end of Jesus' life here on earth when, you know, and we talked about this last week in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's arrested and, and he had just finished having the last supper with his followers. If you'll remember at that, at that supper, he says, hey, one of you sitting around this table is going to deny that you even know me before this night is over. And Peter, who had the spiritual gift of sticking his foot in his mouth, goes, not me, Jesus. These losers might turn their back on you, but I got you, God. Similar to the words that the the cupbearer says to Joseph, hey man, I got you. And then three different times before the next morning, Peter literally says, I don't even know that guy. I want you to know the reason it's possible to turn to Jesus in the waiting room of life and the times that we feel forgotten and lonely is because he got that t-shirt. He knows how it feels. There's nothing worse than walking through something in life and somebody patting you on the back or patting you on the knee and going, it'll be okay, I know how you feel. And you're thinking, no you don't. You don't have a clue how I feel. Jesus knows. He knows what it feels like to be forgotten. So back to Joseph real quick. So Joseph was in prison. And if I'm in prison, I kind of got this tunnel vision that goes something like this. I'm in prison and this stinks. Like, I don't want to be here. And Joseph was probably similar. He, he couldn't see all the big picture stuff in the midst of that waiting room or prison cell. But God was working. Watch. There are times in your life where you're stuck in the waiting room and you can't see it. All you can see is... I'm having to wait and no answers and nobody's telling me anything. But all that time, God is working on your behalf. Let's look at this. Genesis 41, verse 1. It'll be on the screen for you too. It says this. Two full years later. How's that for a waiting room? Not 30 minutes. Two years later. Pharaoh himself had a dream that he was standing on the bank of the Nile River. And if we fast forward and and basically verses 2 through 7 just talk about his dream and describe it. And so skip down to verse 8, the same chapter. This is what the Bible says. The next morning, remember Pharaoh's had a dream. Pharaoh's very disturbed by his dreams. So he called for all the magicians and all the wise men of Egypt. When Pharaoh told them his dreams, not one of them could tell him what it meant. Finally, the key... Finally, if there was ever a powerful finally in the history of the world, it's right here. Like, finally, the idiot, I put that in there, it wasn't originally in there, the idiot cupbearer spoke up. Pharaoh, today I have been reminded of what a bonehead I am because some time ago, verse 10, I'm ad-libbing a little bit, some time ago you were angry with the chief baker and me and you put us in prison in the palace of the captain of the guard. Verse 11. One night, the chief baker and I each had a dream, and each dream had its own meaning. There was this young Hebrew boy. I can't believe I'm remembering this now. I don't even know how long it's been. Joseph's going, it's been two years, dude. I know exactly how long it's been. He says, there was this young Hebrew man with us in prison who was a slave of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he told us what each dream meant. 
Verse 13, and everything happened just as he predicted. I was restored to my position as cupbearer, and the chief baker was executed and impaled on a pole, just like Joseph said. Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once, and he was quickly brought from the prison. After he shaved and changed his clothes, what a good day, man, right? What a good day, like... Finally, finally, and, and, and we'll come back to the cupbearer because if I was Joseph and the cupbearer forgot me for two years and then finally the Pharaoh calls me into his court and the cupbearer is standing there, I got some words. We're going to have a little conversation, me and the cupbearer. I got your back, dude, really? Two years later? But he went in and he stood before Pharaoh. Now, watch, this is where I get the privilege of telling you this. Whether you recognize it or not, God is always working on your behalf. And I'll go this, I'll go even farther. You ready? Even if you don't believe in God, he's working on your behalf. He's he's drawing you to him. He wants to know you. He's pursuing you. He's chasing after you. Even if you're rejecting him, even if you're angry at him, even if you've given up on God or assume he's given up on you, I'm telling you from experience and from the truth of God's word, God is always working on your behalf. Don't insert other people here. He's working for you. He's he's working behind the scenes even though you can't see him. Let's fast forward on down to verse 37. Same chapter, same story. Joseph... uh, uh, tells the pharaohs, here's what your dream means, and if I were you, here's what I would do. And we don't have time to go on all of it. You can read it later, but this is, what the, this is how the pharaoh responds to Joseph's uh, interpreting his dreams. Verse 37, Joseph's suggestions were well received by the pharaoh and his officials. So the pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent and wise as you are. Look what he says, verse 40. You will be in charge of my court and all of my people, and, ta- and they will take, all of my people will take orders from you. Only me, sitting on my throne, will rank higher than you in this land. Can we just take a breath for a minute and think about this? Not too long ago, Joseph is the punk kid, smart mouth at his brothers, and he realizes one day, oops, I may have gone too far, I'm in a pit. Wait a minute, now I'm being sold as a human slave. Wait a minute, now I'm being falsely accused of sexual assault. Can it get any worse? I get into prison, just getting put in prison falsely for something that you didn't do is enough to drive some people mad, yes? But then you meet a guy and you're like, this is my way out. The cupbearer's got my back. And then two more years, you're literally forgotten in prison. No letters, no visits, just forgotten. Watch this. If all of that doesn't happen, this doesn't happen. Joseph had to go through the waiting room, a.k.a. prison, so that God could position him and work on his behalf to, you know, make him the second most powerful human being in the world. Pretty good gig. Now, I, don't go here, at least not right now, but 
later on you can think to yourself, would I walk through all this to get to where Joseph got? And maybe a healthier thing for you to do is to do an exercise in your life where you look back at some really trying times where you were just sure God had forgotten you. No doubt everybody else had, but maybe God had forgotten you too. But then things start to unfold and you wind up here and it's a much better place than you ever were before and you hear yourself utter the words, if I had it to do over again... I wouldn't change a thing if it means I get brought here. The waiting room is inevitable for all of us. And here's the key. Here's the key that Joseph teaches us while we're in the waiting room. Look at this on the screen. Our ability to remain faithful in difficult seasons opens the door to blessings from God in our lives. Now, now time out here real quick. What I'm not saying is our lack of ability to, to you know, uh, be faithful during di- difficult times, if we complain during difficult times, if we give up during difficult times, I'm not saying that disqualifies us and that God gives up on you. That's not what I'm saying. But don't miss this. I am, God's word is teaching us today that our level of obedience during difficult seasons of our lives is directly connected to the level of blessings that God can give us at the end of that story. So if we say, like Joseph, man, God must have a plan. He keeps opening doors. Another person I've thought about a lot during this series is Job. The Bible says he literally sat in the ashes of all his belongings. He lost all his kids in a tornado. And he literally has a piece of pottery. And he's scraping the boils off of his skin. And his wife comes up and goes, why don't you just curse God and die? And he says these famous words that I don't know if my faith is big enough yet to say this. But in the midst of losing all your children, all your belongings, your wife says, curse God and die. And Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Some of us have something we say with the Lord's name in it, but it's not blessed be, right? Something really important about the story of Joseph is this. Remember I mentioned, what would you do if you saw the cupbearer again? One of the ways Joseph remained faithful is that he did not seek revenge. Now, Granted, he was human and he did mess with the minds of his brothers a little bit when they came for grain, okay? We'll give him that. But he's now the second most powerful man in the world. He could have the cupbearer beheaded if he wanted. He could at least have him be put back in prison for two years in kind of a, let's see how you like it, buddy, kind of moment. He doesn't do that. He trusts that God must have a plan even in the middle of the waiting room. Now, we're going to jump to the New Testament and we'll be done. Second Peter chapter 3 has this passage that I've seen all of my Christian life and to be honest with you, I've always kind of skimmed over it because I'm like, I don't even know what that means. And you might think that when we read it, but I'll explain it in a very simple way. Like, we don't have to get all theological and try to unpack all this stuff, but look at this. Second Peter verse chapter 3 verse 8 says do not overlook this one fact so Peter's saying don't miss this before you leave the bridge today do not miss this 
that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I used to really struggle with this and try to wrap my mind around the whole thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years and I would go on, I can't even get to that. All you need to know this morning is this right here. God's timing is different than mine. Parentheses, better. That's all you need to know about that verse this morning as we talk about the waiting room. God's timing is just better. It's amazing how big God is and he knew. By the way, we we planned this series, The Waiting Room, months and months ago. But isn't it just like God to know that the first week that I'm going to teach the first message on The Waiting Room that I would have to spend a lot of time in a waiting room this week. And so, while I was sitting in the waiting room, I added a little bit to my message, and this is how I'd like to close today, and it's simply things I was reminded of this week about waiting rooms. Number one, they smell funny. Probably didn't need me to tell you that one. People watch the weirdest shows in waiting rooms. Like, you never go into a waiting room and they're watching, like, Blue Bloods or, you know, NCIS. It's always, like, a soap opera or Beverly Hillbillies or C-SPAN. Have you ever noticed that? Like, and, and, and have you noticed they don't let you get to the controls of the TV? They're always built in a little window and you're trying to reach your hand back there to get to the button, like, get rid of this, I've got to watch something normal. This week while we were in the waiting room, I wondered if there was like somebody with a camera in another room and they're just laughing at us trying to get to the controls. Like, oh, you know, Ma Clampett's up there on the hillbillies. and Something else I realized about waiting rooms this week, most people who are in waiting rooms are not in a very good mood. Just part of it, right? I mean, you don't run into very many people, like you're sitting in there and the door opens and in bounces this person, they're like, oh my gosh, a waiting room, I couldn't, I couldn't wait to get in here and wait, you know, and, and they're so excited, you never meet anybody like that. People in the waiting room are usually in a bad mood. How about this one? Time seems to crawl when you're in the waiting room, doesn't it? It's almost like it slows down to literally a crawl. Waiting rooms are full of all kinds of people. Waiting rooms do not discriminate based on economic, social, or spiritual status. At some point, everybody has to spend time in the waiting room. Like you can't, you know, if you're in my situation where you're losing a loved one this week, you can't just stand up and announce... I make eight figures a year. I shouldn't have to do this. Waiting room moments don't care. Tragedy doesn't care how much you make or how much you know or where you live or how nice you are. Sometimes you've got to go to the waiting room. 
for the most part, here's a shocker to everyone, waiting rooms are not fun places. You, you know, we were there so long that some of us started, you know, kind of playing a game. And my, my father-in-law was a, was a sports statistic walking around. I mean, he could quote anything. And literally every single year for Christmas, same thing on his Christmas list. All I want for Christmas is a sports almanac. That's it. That's all he wanted. And he would literally read it cover to cover. I'm like, you know, Pappy, except for this year, everything in that book's exactly the same as all the other years that, you know, you could just ask, can you print out the statistics from this year? And literally upstairs in their, their loft, there's like 30 sports almanacs. And I'm like, they all have the same stuff in them. I also learned that critical information is shared in the waiting room. Sometimes it's good news, and sometimes it's not. And I had this surreal moment, Bobby, as I, as I sat in the waiting room this week, and the, the neurosurgeon came out. I had, I had visions of our conversation last Sunday night when we're having this crazy conversation about how frustrating it is that sometimes God chooses to heal people miraculously. Like literally, someone can just lay hands on them and they're healed. And they, they've been in a wheelchair all these years and then they get up and walk away and, and then sometimes God says, no, not this one. Not, not healing this one. Even if it is your pappy. Waiting rooms are places where people are forced to comfort one another. Waiting rooms are places where people are forced to trust in and lean on others. Whether good or bad, waiting rooms are places where old chapters of life end and new ones begin. And if there was a little small level of comfort this week, we were in a waiting room where chapters were ending, but right down the hall, there was a waiting room where little babies were being born. And it was a reminder that God's got a really big plan. And just because it doesn't go like you want it to, doesn't mean it's not good. How you handle waiting rooms in life is directly connected to how much you trust that God's way is best. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it it doesn't just seem not fair. Sometimes it's just not fair. Sometimes you feel like you've been forgotten. But God has not forgotten you this morning. Whatever it is you're walking through, however long you've been in the waiting room, he hasn't forgotten you. He is at work, even when you can't feel him or hear him. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you don't forget us. This world forgets us sometimes. We find ourselves in situations where we're looking around and going, does anybody care about me? 
They said they wouldn't give up on me, but they did. They completely forgot me. Thank you, Jesus, that in that moment, you just never forget. And it's one thing to remember, Jesus, but you go farther than that. You are working on our behalf. And we realize, God, your plan doesn't always match our plans. We got to trust that your way is better. And so, God, based on that, knowing that your way is better, we thank you this morning that you are always working. Even for somebody who's sitting here this morning and they walked in here and they're like, I'm I'm over this. I just want to give up. God, would you love on that person today and remind them you are working? You got a plan. It's a good plan. It's a plan to give them a hope and a future. Thank you, Jesus, that you care about us and you never forget us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.